0: Hello and welcome to the third episode of How Do You Solve a Problem Like? This is a podcast that looks at some of the most pressing problems
1: we face in society today and meets the people finding solutions through social purpose businesses.
0: My name's Millie, I'm a radio producer and I'm also a fledgling social entrepreneur. And hello, I'm Anna. I work at Unlimited, supporting businesses like Millie's to
1: grow and to achieve even greater change.
0: In this episode, we're looking at the problem of unhealthy kids. We're going to hear
1: from John Bishop at Evolve, an organisation that employs health mentors to work in schools and help kids with their cognitive, physical and emotional well-being.
2: If we do our job properly at an early age, children are learning to self-regulate, exhibiting more effective learning behaviours. Ultimately, that's good for everybody in society.
0: And we're also speaking to Nathan Atkinson from Rethink Food. They take a stealth health approach when working with kids and their parents. And I also got a chance to hear from students at one of the schools he's working in.
3: So the message that we give to children is please take this food, you're going to help save the planet and that way children are really motivated to take the food.
1: We're also joined this week by a special guest. There seemed to be a theme emerging for me and Millie when we were discussing this episode around evidence and impact and we wanted to get a specialist's view. So I invited Josh from Unlimited's
4: research team. Hello, guys. I'm Josh. I'm the Venture Impact Specialist at Unlimited.
0: Oh, it's good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So initially we were actually thinking about calling this, how do you solve a problem like childhood obesity? But having looked at it and having had some discussions, we felt that that was stigmatising in itself and it wasn't something that we wanted to really continue to perpetuate. It's just one of those classic oversimplifications of a problem. It's kind of a buzz thing that we hear in the media that kids are obese and it doesn't really tell us much about what's actually going on and and about the real issue behind the Mm. symptom. Yeah, I think the media, when they talk about it, tend to
1: mislead. And they don't really talk about how childhood obesity can actually intersect with things like poverty, mental health, education. And the work Nathan and Jonathan are doing, whilst it does tackle obesity, it's also looking at health in a much more holistic way.
0: Exactly. And so when we're using... The term unhealthy, we're talking about all aspects of health, not just physical, but mental. And actually, Nathan really kind of faced this head on and talked about how obesity and hunger go absolutely hand in hand. And that that connection is what actually inspired him in the first place to get started. He's very much focused on diet and fighting malnutrition in kids by tackling the stigma of poverty whilst also saving the planet.
3: Right. good afternoon. Um, So, my name is Mr Atkinson and I used to use that formal name in my last job. My name is Nathan Atkinson and I run an organisation called Rethink Food. I'd started working in a new school September 2014. We'd had a week off. It was one of those days that when we came back there, there were lots of things that went wrong, including the gas failing in the kitchen. So we had to give the children sandwiches for their dinner and jelly and ice cream. And in our minds, that was okay. Actually, as things turned out, the behaviour in lunchtime and into the afternoon was really negative from some children. Now, it's my belief that all behaviour is a form of communication. So we sat down with some of the children and said, I can't imagine what it must feel like to be so angry that you've had a fight, that you've smashed a chair, that you've sworn at your teacher... One of the older children stood up and he said, I'll show you. And he pointed to his stomach and he said, it hurts here. The message that he was getting across that he was hungry. And so I wrote the word hunger on my office wall and vowed to do something about it. The more we talked to the children, the more they told us stories about food insecurity and how hunger was a barrier to learning. so we started a project that used surplus food from supermarkets this went really well in my school and then i decided to provide a breakfast using surplus food to children across leeds fed 10000 children in one day using surplus food and the legacy of that was the formal creation of a program In the early days there was a perception that this was food for poor people and some people were too proud to access that food. So that's where we introduced the environmental concept and started to focus on teaching the Sustainable Development Goals to help save the planet and that's what the Sustainable Development Goals are. So just talk to the person next to you and make sure that you understand what are the Sustainable Development Goals. (laughs) So the message that we give to children is, please take this food, it reduces CO2 emissions. that way children are really motivated to take the food and families are accessing this food for a greater good rather than for their own basic needs.
0: You mentioned that children were coming to your school hungry. More often than not, the headlines we see are about obesity crisis and fat kids and all of this kind of messaging. And people would think that that's more of a pressing public health concern. How are the two linked and how can the two coexist?
3: Hunger and obesity tragically go hand in hand. Deprived areas have a much more dense population of takeaway outlets. So you can buy fried chicken, pizza deals, really low quality, low nourished foods. And if you haven't got any money on your electricity, how can you boil a pan of water to to cook a pan of carrots? So people are, for a number of different circumstances, accessing low quality food much cheaper than they would do other kinds of food that will ultimately lead to a more healthy lifestyle. Right, back to your game. So, we anybody got goal three? Good health and well-being.
0: Okay. Oh, lots of ideas here. What are you thinking? Deforestation, plastic in ocean, climate change, pollution, and war. Very good. That's five. This is a really good start, isn't it? It's a really good start. We've just been in the classroom doing a workshop. Tell me about what you've been doing.
3: So we've just been delivering a basic sustainable development goal workshop to children. What we've found throughout our work is that using the framework of the sustainable development goals is a great way of teaching children about food and improving children's relationships with food.
0: Why do you think that focus on the environment is so much more effective than focusing on kind of this is good for you, this is bad for you,
3: I think people have heard it so many times around, don't eat this, you're drinking too much sugar. That sort of big brother nanny state approach to giving you that advice. Whereas we've found that working towards a greater good, so working towards saving the planet, really resonates with children. In primary school, that's when certain neurons come online in your brain where you have a passion and when you care about something. So if we can get the children to care about the planet and know that their actions and what they eat can impact on the planet, when you get it right with children, that's when you can truly influence change.
1: on the news once that there was a sea creature has to go all the way down but it was all the way at the top because of plastic maybe they'll die because they can't stay out of water for too long
0: going from being a head teacher in a primary school to heading up the rethink food movement how easy has that journey been for you personally as a social entrepreneur
3: Well, my core purpose has always been to educate and the way that we can change the issues that we face around food is through education and quality education. So in some ways, it's been a seamless movement from one profession to the other. It's that core purpose. The Food Futures programme is really exciting and looks at alternative ways of food production and food growing. We use aeroponic technology to grow food in classrooms, in communities, in businesses. So we take a seed and transform it into salad within 60 days. In the UK, 95% of children don't eat enough fresh produce, but statistically it's proven that when people grow food together, they're five times more likely to eat that produce. So bringing the food and the growing techniques into the classroom is meaning that more children are eating fresh produce. I'm
5: Neil Pacheco, I'm a Year 5 teacher, I'm also the science leader and we're in the x mine community. It's borderline with deprivation. When I got Nathan's email, it seemed like an opportunity that's too good to pass up.
0: What impact do you think he's having with the children that he's engaging on this
5: programme? A very high impact is certainly making them think about what we can do to improve our environment to uh, be more sustainable and to choose more healthy options and certainly what they're bringing for lunch and on school trips as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's impact on the parents as well because uh, with the after-school club that Nathan is running tonight got a lot of parental interest, a lot of children brought their parents. So if I was to generally send out a letter to parents I think the response would have been uh, not as good as we've had tonight and with their children pestering their parents and promoting it it's had a really positive impact. So positive pester power. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yes. So, we're at the after school club. I'm assuming you're a mum. I
6: am, <laughs> you're, yeah. You're, and that's
0: why you're here.
6: My daughter brought a letter home from school and she seemed so excited about doing it and really wanted to join in and she finds it really interesting and I do as well about how we can grow this food so quickly. Have you ever grown food
0: before?
6: I've tried, failed miserably, but yeah, we've tried like, salad and things like that and
0: strawberries and failed miserably. Yeah. So I can't even keep one of those basil plants alive at home. I can kill cactus somewhere. <laughs> yeah. And has it made you think differently about what you eat and why you eat it and how you eat it or the impact of your diet?
6: Yeah, Lily is a very picky eater, so I'm hoping it will encourage her to eat more veg and fruit and things like that, because she's such a picky eater, and eats very few vegetables, and hopefully she will eat better.
0: How do you know that this is working? How can you track the impact you're having?
3: We collect a lot of soft data throughout this programme, anecdotal stories, case studies... Recently, we worked in a school where the head teacher said that a parent had been into school and told them that their child had vowed not to have any time off school because they now had a responsibility, and that was linked to our growing programme. So in some ways, our our programmes improve attendance at school, and that's really important. So you talked about having these
0: positive outcomes. And obviously, I've just been in this workshop with you, and I've seen how inspired and engaged the kids all were you covered an awful lot of ground, but in a really accessible and engaging way. But how can you really prove that that's going to lead to real behaviour changes?
3: I think it's about having realistic expectations. We know that we're competing with organisations that have million pound advertising campaigns. The fast food industry, you mean? How do you become an exciting alternative to this? And that's what we are chipping away at. We're not expecting to change the world tomorrow, but if we can plant a seed that resonates with children, that they can actually see the outcomes. So when we are growing something, we grow it in the classroom. When we're talking about waste food, we're bringing the waste food in. We're seeing how the system that they access to do with food is impacting on them, but also on the planet and the longevity of the planet.
0: In terms of your ambition for Rethink Food, what's your vision?
3: The vision for Rethink Food is to create a national centre of excellence by which we can put food at the heart of a physical space and we can teach the sustainable development goals through food.
1: We've realised that if you were living on the streets it'd be harder for you or living with more people. We learnt quite a lot about all the things
3: that we should do and what we shouldn't do.
1: Okay, lots of things to unpick there. What really struck me is how Nathan is crossing over into multiple spheres. He's talking about education and also the fast food industry and even something that seems really quite removed, which is climate change.
0: And he's put all those things together. And one of the lovely things about it is just how much the kids really do care about saving the planet. And that came across in the workshop that Nathan was doing. And it's quite timely because we've just had this huge kids walkout on climate change. It becomes
1: a challenge when you get these complex interconnections to think about how you can tease out what your individual efforts are doing and the change you're creating. So can Nathan say he's contributing at the scale of the Sustainable Development Goals? It's great that he's managed to link something that can feel quite personal, i.e. your own diet, to something that can feel so global, which are the Sustainable Development Goals. Yeah, I have no idea how you go about proving that those two things are linked and that you're able to drive change at both those levels. That's the sort of question that has led me to bring in Josh. Hi, Josh. So again,
0: <laughs> as you like heard in that feature, I did press Nathan a little bit for some data and if he was evidencing what he was doing, and he certainly had that qualitative and anecdotal evidence that backed up that this was making real change. But I think it's a real struggle for a lot of social entrepreneurs or small businesses if it's just a one man or two man or woman operation. You know, trying to find the time to also collect data and evidence your impact? Where do you even start with that?
4: Yeah, and I think one of the things that we try to do at Unlimited is to help the social entrepreneur figure out what's proportional to the amount of work they're doing. So if it is a one person team who's delivering lots of work with amazing people, we're not going to try and burden them with going on collecting lots of data and filling in loads of surveys because what they're great at is running an amazing business and helping people. So what we tend to try and do is work with someone like Nathan to figure out, well, how do we use the evidence you're already gathering from the stories you have and what you see? And then trying to find other evidence that he can use, be that either external information that produced by others or data that he could generate himself if we find ways to integrate it into his work.
0: Yeah. Uh, This sort of goes back to a conversation Anna and I had in episode two about the human story, the individual story versus the data uh, that tells us about a bigger picture. And for me, I sort of switch off a little bit at the word data.
4: And the first thing that we do is make sure that they actually have a reason to collect more data. Mm -hmm. So the kind of starting point is to figure out Who are their key audiences that they might want to influence? Is it to try to help them grow their business and maybe secure more investment? Or is it to have enough evidence to influence policy or influence key people in your system with the information you have? And people expect a certain level of evidence if they want to change the way they're currently doing something. You know, business as usual is there. If you're trying to shift that, you've got to have a reason to shift it. It's so one of the reasons we start off with saying, who do you want to tell your story to, and therefore make sure that what you're collecting is something that they'll understand. So if the people hate data and big data, then you shouldn't present a whole set of graphs and charts and some complex methodology. Sometimes it can be the human story that has more of an impact on the way people think. And
0: Nathan spoke as well about some sort of unexpected outcomes that he had that kids' absences were reduced. So the children were more likely to be in school when they had these responsibilities, they had these plants to look after, or they had a market stall to tend to. They were less likely to miss those days of school. And John, who we're about to hear from, also said the unexpected outcome of the work that he does with children is that teachers are less likely to take sick days. Uh, Is that something that's important to capture? I mean, it seems like it is.
4: I think that if you... Do find that you're getting information about unexpected outcomes or unintended consequences, be they positive or negative, that's great. You should think, okay, well, maybe we want to collect that in the future. Mm-hmm. But one of the things you see sometimes can paralyze social entrepreneurs is when they start thinking about impact measurement and they think, okay, well, I have to collect data on, in this instance, the kids, the teachers, the parents, and the, you know everyone else. And all of a sudden it becomes a completely undoable tasks so sometimes it's actually better to start off with saying okay well i want to try and prove this one thing that i'm trying to change and as i go along i seem to be open to recognizing other trends other behaviors that are there and that's what we call kind of qualitative data the kind of stories can do better than pure quant
0: I guess if you're tackling one problem, as we often talk about, a lot of problems intersect with lots of other problems Mm -hmm. and lots of solutions intersect with other solutions. So you start to introduce a solution for one thing, it's going to have lots of other benefits in lots of other areas. But it did strike me that if you're having less absences from teachers and therefore less supply teachers, that could essentially pay for the programme in a lot of schools. So having that data would be really important.
4: It comes back to that question again of, Collect data against things which you can then use. So if he thinks that that's going to be genuinely useful for his business, then absolutely, go and collect it. So long as it's proportional to the amount of time you spend with teachers, you also want to avoid research fatigue, where you're constantly asking everyone about how great you were. I know everyone loves feedback, but being asked for too much feedback can be quite a lot.
0: You get asked for feedback everywhere, don't we? I've just been doing feedback on Airbnb that I just stayed at. I've just had a doctor's appointment that I just been asked for. Feedback on that. I've been asked for feedback from my phone company. We're constantly being asked for feedback everywhere, aren't we? And when I think of those kinds of ways of gathering data and feedback, how genuine are they? Because I generally put, if there's a five-star thing, I'll put four. Nothing's perfect, yeah. but I want to be nice, basically.
4: Yeah. So I'm like the opposite. I tend to start with everyone deserves a five-star to begin with and then they will lose stariness depending yeah. on what goes wrong. So your question, sorry, in yeah. terms of, well, what's the point? And is it actually meaningful? If you ask one person to only fill in a survey with a couple of those questions, you know, on one to five, do you agree not? Mm -hmm. It's probably not going to give you a lot of information. But if you do it over a period of time with new people coming in, so you've got new samples, new data, you can start to build up a picture. But that alone isn't enough. Unlimited, we have access to employment impact stream. There's a lot of data out there around disability employment, as some of the people who are distant from the labour market, and... That data alone does not paint the full picture of the kind of problems that people are facing in the labour market if they have a disability.
1: I think there's something interesting there for me. It's not necessarily to your four star or five star. That might not be very meaningful, but what might be meaningful is the change. I.e. we're seeing more and more people rate our services as being useful and that could be actually telling you we're doing the right thing or conversely we've seen that people are not rating our service as being that useful and we talked about in the first episode how important it was to feel comfortable charging money and running a business and this can be one way if you are a profit for purpose if you are capturing that you are actually achieving your purpose that can then lead you to be like I can say that I'm a business because I reinvest all the profit and I know that that makes a difference.
0: And talking of achieving your purpose, this is a good time to introduce our second social entrepreneur, John Bishop. John set up the organisation Evolve who also worked really hard to improve childhood health in schools. He works mainly in the West Midlands but happily he also works and has had a very profound positive impact in a school in London which happens to be a five minute walk from my house. So I went to meet him there at Seven Sisters Primary School and whilst I was there I also met Tara who's the deputy head and Philippe the school's resident health mentor who we'll be hearing from first.
6: My name's Tara Welsh. I'm the assistant head teacher here for inclusion at Seven Sisters. We did have a high number of exclusions at the school, which is why we got involved with Evolve in the first place. But we can categorically say that the impact of Evolve has allowed us to put in different provisions for children and to ensure that they are kept in school and that they're starting to build their resilience because we really do believe as a school that resilience is key We've been involved with Evolve for the last three years, our third year currently with our second health mentor, Philippe. More and more children are entering school with more complex mental health needs. I've been in teaching for 16 years and there is a definite increase in children with communication and language needs, with autistic spectrum disorders, but also with attachment disorders. Children are needing help with their resilience and their mental health and understanding how to improve their own mental health. What kind of behaviour were the children demonstrating to get them excluded? Very unsafe behaviour, trying to hurt other children, actually hurting other children. We've had children in the past who have assaulted staff members. But I think we are very much at a place in our journey now where we see behaviour as communication So we don't necessarily treat the behaviour, we try and treat the underlying cause.
0: Philippe, you're a health mentor here at Seven Sisters Primary. How do you take a child from being Mm -hmm. unhealthy to healthy? What does that look like? What does that programme entail?
4: A typical day of a health mentor will involve anything from running free breakfast clubs in the mornings, which involves sort of mindfulness and physical activity sessions, Afternoons could be spent running mentoring sessions to address any target kids' specific emotional needs. Then I'll probably be running after-school clubs and uh, lunchtime physical activity sessions as well. So I do
2: a whole range of different stuff.
0: That's, that's do you know Philippe and what does he do? For every breakfast club we go to takes us to the gym and play some games. Do you go to the breakfast club with him as well? Yeah. So you do things before school. What, what kind do, of things do you do? To play a game called Connect Four. I'm allowed to draw a colour. Someone told me you did oh mine yeah, on that's, um, that's on Fridays. What do you think of that? It's how to calm yourself down. Do you find that helpful? Yeah. yeah? Some children go to Mr. Philippe and play
1: some games and... Talk about what friends are and about your feelings.
3: Do you go to the breakfast club? Yes. What do you do there? On Thursdays, we do reading club, on Wednesdays, I do after school club football training, and on Mondays, we do exercising club.
2: My name is John Bishop. I'm the managing director of Evolve, a social impact company. Our role is to try and help children reach their potential. We do that by improving their physical, emotional and cognitive well-being.
0: You just described Evolve as a social impact company. Can you tell me what that means?
2: We make money by delivering a good service and that service helps society. A lot of our work is focused in schools at the moment and if we're successful in what we do, we give children a better start in life. Ultimately, that's good for everybody in society.
0: But you do also make a profit?
2: Yeah, so as part of our Articles of Association, we have to reinvest over 50% of our profits each year into growing the business. A lot of our profits over the last couple of years have been reinvested in research and development and, more recently, to develop our evidence base in the hope that we'll be able to start changing things at a systems level so it's not just about us fighting one contract to the next. We can change the way that children's services are commissioned And that might be beneficial not just to evolve but to other social enterprises working in the same space
0: and how easy is it to change a system that's embedded and kind of already established
2: certainly when it comes to the mental health agenda there's been a number of coalitions that have come together and they've certainly been able to exert quite some influence there to lead to things such as the mental health green paper so in certain areas it does tend to work Because we are in that mental health space, but also the physical health one. If we do our job properly at an early age, children are learning to self-regulate, they're exhibiting more effective learning behaviours, and that will ultimately lead to benefits for Department for Work and Pensions and the criminal justice system. So one of the challenges that we have right now is trying to educate policymakers that you don't have to commission interventions on a siloed basis. It's that joint commissioning model and the collaborative approach from a systems level that will really make a difference.
0: Tell me a little bit about the practicalities of the work you do.
2: We used to work in schools and it was always around using physical activity as a vehicle to develop personal skills, confidence, self-esteem, leadership. But it was head teachers that we were working with, the the fee-paying clients, who realised that the impact that our staff were having on the vulnerable children in school was quite profound. So we came up with a model called Project HERO, and HERO stands for Health Engagement Real Outcomes, because we felt back then that if you addressed a child's physical and emotional well-being, then the academic results will follow. And it was interesting that... A few years later, the government themselves commissioned a paper which stated that children's emotional health was a better predictor of their future success in life than exam grades. And that's been the basis of our organisation over the last few years.
0: You said that people doubted that it would work. What have been the challenges over the years?
2: The main challenge around the programme isn't around the programme itself, it's around the funding model. And this is why... We're having to work at a systems level now because schools are having to really tighten their belts when it comes to pastoral support in schools. Some classes benefit from a teaching assistant, but that's it. Children today aren't always going into the school where they're in a position where they can learn, and we're fortunate enough to be working with a pretty influential neuroscientist called Professor Michael Mersnich, who's from the University of California in San Francisco, and his work is fascinating around neuroplasticity. What he's found is that adverse childhood experiences can stun neurological development in children. So it's no surprise that they're struggling to access learning and use the cognitive functioning, which is expected in the classroom. They're the underlying principles for literacy, numeracy and all subjects. But what we should really be doing in the classroom is improving their brain health so that they can access learning and get off to a better start in life.
6: We do have some exclusion still and we have to show that that consequence is still there but we've cut right down from I think it was 30 odd days three years ago to I think we're on two or three. We try our best not to exclude, we will always look at other options. That's really our ethos in our school, empowering children to find the solutions to their problem.
1: So John raises some important points there on systems change and what does it mean to be operating at that level? Who owns the problem when you have different beneficiaries in terms of whether that's criminal justice, whether that's health, education, Department of Work and Pensions? If all those parts of society can benefit, then how do you get them all to recognise that and ideally pay for it?
0: Any ideas, Josh?
4: (laughs) Anne and I have debated this quite a lot, actually. And I think the current way of thinking is that most departments have a very short-term budget and a short-term sort of set of deliverables that they're held account to and these kind of procurement frameworks.
0: And isn't that one of the key things that people want to change about the system? Yeah. That it's so short-termist.
4: Exactly, yeah. And actually, well, everyone is thinking about the economy and society. In terms of how impact measurement can be used to do that, if people are properly showing how they're managing to help the young people they're working with to then show the kind of beneficial outcomes in a way that everyone's confident it is worth investing in. You can help change that discussion, whereas right now it's kind of a, we have a hunch and trying to get someone to change their behaviours based on a hunch is kind of difficult.
1: But how can you evidence something like, okay, because I helped this young person in primary school, they then don't go on to be an offender at 18?
4: So I think the best thing that you can do is, first of all, be clear about what you did with that person at that age and so on. And then from there, you use a sort of set of proxies and external research that's already been done to try and say, well, we assume that if we've done this kind of work with a person, they're going to have better emotional well-being, as you said before with John, better cognitive health. And that means that hopefully they'll be able to attain better GCSEs. That gives them a better chance at future employment prospects and so on and so on. So it's about being as transparent as you can about those proxies that you're using when you're talking about very much a long-term outcome.
1: And also for me, that makes me think that you don't have to just do it all yourself, that there's a whole body of research out there that you can draw on, and that's completely legitimate to do.
4: Yeah, and almost 99% of the ventures that I work with seem to think they have to prove everything in you every single time. We all know that if kids eat vegetables in moderation, then they will be healthier. You don't have to go and prove that the kids are having some kind of better outcome. But if you say, yes, that we know they're eating better, you can then say, well, we assume they're healthier because of that. And it's just being transparent about those assumptions you're making. And that's sometimes where people just panic about saying, well, I'm not 100% sure, but I do have a certain level of confidence that I've helped them be healthier at this age. And that means they've been more engaged at school, more engaged means better chance of getting good grades and bum, bum, bum.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: Can I kind of go back and unpick um, this term systems change and, and what kind of systems are we talking about and how do you start to change it? And it's certainly something that's come up in previous episodes, it's also something I, I hear more and more about these days, um, this idea of changing systems and, and kind of what those systems might be and, and how we go about it, basically. Yeah.
4: I So I think when people talk about systems change, I always try and imagine whether or not they're talking about one of two systems. One is the sort of engineering approach to a system, which is a very easy mechanical set of levers and you understand what's powering it and you understand if you pull this lever, something happens over there. And the systems that we're talking about are much bigger, dynamic and complex systems. And for me, when social entrepreneurs need to think about measuring their impact, they need to think about what level of system are they actually operating? at? Are they talking about all the environmental inputs and resources we're using all the way through to the impact of people around the globe? And the kind of SDG question you asked. Or do they want to dial down a little bit and think about their little microsystem, their subsystem, which they might actually have some influence over? So I think if we take John's example at, with Evolve, so the first kind of, let's call it the subsystem that he works in is the school. And the school is made up of all the kids and the teachers and the governors who are somehow working with that school, but also the parents who have an influence on the school. So when he's thinking about how to change kids' health, it needs to be engaging all those people and recognising how they work with one another and how the environment around that might affect the kids looking at high streets and the way that they're developed john then may also want to think about larger systems in society and for example procurement systems in government and how different government departments do procure their services it's not just about economics and just the procurement contract it's the whole culture in the government of wanting short-term games spending short-term budgets having a lot of pressure and so what the reason we sort of think about systems is that the problem you're trying to address is probably much bigger than just oh this person isn't procuring well. It's that whole culture of like, why are they spending money? What's their incentive to spend? How are they making decisions? And sometimes opening up that kind of systems lens helps you recognise that, I guess, the interplay and the relationship between all those different things.
0: Mm. I suppose the a system that comes to mind for me that I see the term systems change used around a lot is around the criminal justice system. And that seems like a very difficult system to change. And when I spoke to Nathan about it in the earlier interview, the system that really he's up against is capitalism, essentially, isn't it? Like,
3: you know, fast
0: food industry and Mm. advertising and, you know, all of that stuff. I mean, that's a pretty large system to try and take on. But I guess someone has to do it. Right.
4: <laughs> yeah, and, and sort of that question of capitalism as a system and what people like Nathan do really well is bring the human element into it and re- realise that it's people making purchasing decisions and it's, it's governments and its businesses doing certain nudges and sometimes helping to think about the system and, okay, so why are people purchasing that way? Why is fast food so attractive? It's convenient, it's cheap and so on. Sometimes taking that kind of systems lens just makes you realise the kind of little points you can nudge and tweak and maybe achieve the outcomes you want to.
1: And is there a way that people can find out more?
4: So we run social impact workshops up and down the UK. We're doing one up in Scotland in May. We're even going over to Northern Ireland at the end of the year, which we're very excited for. So anyone wants to come go into the limited website and look for our workshops. And we'll also be delivering some online tools soon. But we first actually want to hear from social entrepreneurs. If anyone wants to talk about social impact, give us a shout because it's great.
1: Have we convinced you, Millie, that this is an exciting area to talk about? I am very excited
0: right now by, by, so by impact measurement, and I never thought those were words you'd hear me say. I should have got
4: my questionnaire. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes.
0: I would give you maybe four and a half stars oh. out of five, and that's saying something. Thanks for joining us, Josh.
4: Thank you for having me. Thanks yeah. for the tea.
5: Well, um,
0: So if you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, or even if you don't and you want to tell us how to improve it and get that five-star rating, find us on Twitter at A Problem Like.
1: And you can also go to our website at aproblemlike.com. There you'll find information about John and Nathan and the work that they're doing. And also, if you are interested in finding out more about impact measurement and some of the tools that Josh has mentioned, we will provide links there as well. See you next time.